Well, we're going to be looking together at Psalm 49, uh, 47. Sorry. If you'd like to just grab your handouts and open them up, we've printed the psalm inside, and you'll see I've laid it out in a particular way, and I'll, I'll come to that uh, in a moment. But let's pray before we look at this together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you'll be with us uh, by your Spirit, giving us insight and understanding into your inspired Word. Um, may we grasp what you're saying to us so that you feed us this afternoon that you strengthen us, that you equip us, that you shape and direct us uh, to be people who live according to your word uh, and people who in so doing have an impact in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask again for some audience response in just a minute, but I want to tell you in advance what the three questions will be so that you don't accidentally say yes to the wrong question. Um, I'm going to ask who among you are monarchists? I'm going to ask, who among you are Republicans? And then thirdly, who among you just don't care? All right, so it's time to show our colours. All right, who are monarchists? Come on, up go the hands. Yep, all right. Who are Republicans? Okay, yep. And uh, who doesn't care? All right, we're a pretty apathetic bunch. Um, My reading on that, um, without actually counting, was that the Republicans were slightly smaller than the monarchists, Uh, But the majority of us don't care. Now, that means, I think, that we've got a problem with this psalm. Uh, That is, we've been vaccinated against monarchy. The majority of us don't care or we believe in a republic, but we're not particularly passionate uh, about the idea of having a king. And I think if we were to ask for a show of hands, who was committed to and passionate about the idea of having a queen versus who is committed to and passionate about the idea of having a king, the Queen would win hands down. It's actually interesting. I I did some uh, stats uh, during the week. Well, I didn't do them. I actually just read them. And I discovered that pretty much the same number of people in Great Britain watched the King's coronation on TV as watched the Queen's. Now, when you think about the fact that Basically, people got TV to watch the Queen's coronation or gathered together in a shop front window just to be able to see it, that the same number of people 70 years later would be watching it now just indicates the decline. And if it's declined there at the centre of the empire, what about out in the colonies? Well, we experience that day to day. Well, I'm saying that to you because I want to focus just for a little bit here on the King's coronation. Um, So having um, hopefully overcome some of your inoculation, uh, here we have the King's coronation. Um, Here he is, uh, wherever he is, wearing whatever he's got on, uh, gathering the bits and pieces that are involved in becoming the King. Obviously a crown is a part of that. Uh, Here he is carrying an orb. That's about the only two things I can remember. And uh, he's walking out in the procession. He gets into this incredible carriage, which is worth squillions. It's made out of gold. Uh, They're travelling through uh, the streets of London. In fact, they didn't actually go very far, but it took a very long time uh, because there were so many people who were part of the procession, not just participants in the procession, but people gathered there to see the spectacle. Uh, For all, it may have been smaller and less significant in British and world terms, it was still quite the pageant. Uh, 
And uh, here the people turn out because they're celebrating the coronation of their king. Uh, of course, the king has a queen, Camilla, and you see them there gathered in front of their people now, their subjects, and uh, there they are, and we'll let them say goodbye to us. Um, so there's the king's coronation. Why do I focus on that? Well, because in so many ways, this psalm picks up on the idea of the king's coronation. And uh, I, I want to read through the psalm with you once more. It's only very short. And to get you to observe the structure of the psalm as we go. Now, having said this, observe the structure, really all I'm saying is observe the structure that I've already observed and printed out for you. Um, that is, you, you might come up with a different structure in the psalm and, and that'll be good. Uh, as I look closely at this and keep looking at it, these are the observations that I have made. Um, first of all, we see it's for the director of music of the Sons of Korah. It's a psalm. And then it opens with these words, Clap your hands, all you nations, shout to God with cries of joy. That leads in then to, For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. Uh, why is he awesome? Well, he subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. And then you get verse 5. Now, in the Hebrew originally, there's a little thing called a selah, just a little pause probably after verse 4. God has ascended amid shouts of joy, the Lord amidst the sounding of trumpets. And then what I want you to notice is the parallels between verse 1, clap your hands or you nations, shout to God with cries of joy, with verse 6. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. And then verse 7 again, sing praises. So both halves of this psalm begin with the call to people to sing the praises of God for he is the king. You see in verse 1, it's all the nations or your version might have all the peoples. It's not Israel that's on view in verse 1, it's the whole earth. It's peoples everywhere. In verse 6, it's probably the gathering. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. Throughout this psalm, there's a parallel. The connection between God and king. The king that's in mind here is God. The aspect of God that's in mind is his kingship. And we speak sometimes, don't we, of the sovereignty of God. It's not a technical term, sovereignty. It just means the kingship of God, the rule of God. God is the king in the kingdom that he has, which is all the earth. God is the king over all. Notice, secondly, that the reason that's established there <clears throat> is the same in verse 7 as it was in verse 2. Uh, verse 2, for the Lord most high is awesome, the great king over all the earth. And then verse 7, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a praise a psalm of praise. So God is to be praised because he is the king and he's the king over all the earth. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe to be praised. Uh, next you see verse uh, 3 and verse 8 in parallel. A picture really of God ruling over the nations. Verse 3, he subdued or subdues or will subdue nations 
uh, under us, peoples under our feet. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. So not only do you have a picture there of God being king, but he's king over various kingdoms, over the various nations. And it's made more personal in the next parallel, verse 4, he chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved, which is possibly a, a reference to the promised land. That was the inheritance that God had for his people. And that meant the defeat of other nations so that Israel had the promised land to call their own. Uh, and that is God keeping his covenant promise. But down in verse 9, the nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. So back in verse 4, it's Jacob. Now in verse 9, it's Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Now, last term, we looked at the Bible in 10 steps. And we saw that uh, having rebelled against God's good plan for this world, God made a promise to Abraham to put things right. And do you remember what the nature of that promise was? That God's people would be in a special place under the rule of God's special king. They would be blessed and be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So verse 9, is a, it's like a, a summary, fulfilment of all that God had in mind. Not just the promises to the nation of Israel, the people of Jacob, but to the people of Abraham, whom we discover when we get to the New Testament, are people from every tribe and language and people and nation. So what do we then see? You see four parallels with a centrepiece. So what is the centrepiece? Verse 5. God has ascended amidst shouts of joy, the Lord amidst the sounding of trumpets. The, the picture here is of, of God being lifted up, God going up, God ascending. And it's a picture that is consistent with coming to Jerusalem and ruling on the throne. The language of, of going up or being brought up to Jerusalem occurs in a couple of places. And I'll just point out one of them. And it's this passage here in 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel 6, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, that's not Noah's Ark, that's the Indiana Jones Ark, the, the one that's got the Ten Commandments in it. The Ark of the Covenant is about to be brought up into Jerusalem as David is established as the king. In 2 Samuel 7, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord, notice, with shouts and the sound of trumpets. With shouts and the sound of trumpets. Exactly the same Hebrew words in the same order as verse 5. God has ascended amidst shouts of joy, the Lord amidst the sound of the trumpets. And so it might well be this that's giving rise to the psalm. It might be reflecting back to the time when it's not just David who's ruling in Jerusalem, but the Ark of the Covenant is brought in to demonstrate the fact that it is God who will rule over Jerusalem. It is God's word that will be the edict for the people, not simply the word of David, but the word of God. We don't know exactly. We're not given an historical picture, but it seems reasonable to think of it in these terms. 
And later in 2 Kings, we get various descriptions of, of kings being appointed to the throne. And look at this language here. Jehoiada brought out the king's son. The king's son is only seven years old, by the way, and put the crown on him. He presented him with a copy of the covenant and proclaimed him king. And they anointed him and the people clapped their hands and shouted, long live the king. I mean, what we've got in Psalm 47, it, it kind of resonates. Uh, it, it, it seems to be in, in the same kind of ballpark as a coronation ceremony where the king is anointed, where, where God's kingdom is established and demonstrated in Jerusalem. That seems to be the picture that you've got here. But of course, when you look at this from a historical perspective, there was no time in the Old Testament when all this was true. There's no time when you can see a king in Israel who is the king over every other king. The king of kings, if you like, or the lord of lords. So what we've got with this psalm is both poetry and prophecy. It paints a picture of what's going on with the king and with God as the king, but it's prophetic in that we need to keep looking through our Bibles to find the fulfilment. And so we do that and we come to the New Testament and we find that the New Testament, unsurprisingly, fulfills this psalm. And it's a psalm which, which has been associated by Christians consistently with the ascension of Jesus, the, the going up of Jesus. In fact, uh, if you've come from a, a church background that's followed a lectionary, which is like a set of readings from week to week, uh, if you've come from a Roman Catholic or an Anglican background and you've you followed a, a prayer liturgy, um, perhaps the Book of Common Prayer, this psalm, Psalm 47, is the psalm to be read on the day of ascension, which remembers the ascension of Jesus where he is taken up into heaven to the right hand of God where he rules upon high. So the Christian church has historically understood this to find its fulfilment in the ascension of Jesus. But I think there's more to it than that. See, if you come with me and you could really look at this from any of the four Gospels, I'm going to take you to John. And um, in John's Gospel, we read this in chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. All four Gospels declare the singing to Jesus as the King who enters into Jerusalem. Different to expectation, he arrives on a cult, but there's background of that as well in the book of Zechariah. But the promise that the King will come to Jerusalem is something that Jesus deliberately set out to fulfil. In each of the Gospels, he says, I must go to Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem. It's very deliberate to go to Jerusalem. He ascends to Jerusalem. But of course, what do we make of the Ascension Day idea? Well, you read that just a few verses later. Jesus says to them, And when I am lifted up from the earth, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, that sounds like a reference to the, 
to the ascension of Jesus, doesn't it? After his death and resurrection, you can read about it in Luke 24, you can read about it in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that, that verse 9, Jesus ascends into heaven. He, he goes up into heaven, the people watch him go and the angels say that he'll return as he left. Back in verse 8, it says, I want you to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, the one who is exalted, who is king over all, is gathering people from the nations, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. He's gathering people together. That's what Jesus is doing. It seems like this is the fulfilment, and I think it is. But John wants us to know something else first. Look at the next verse. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. See, when he says about being lifted up, yes, he will be lifted up into heaven, but there's a lifting up that has to take place first. He's going to be nailed on a cross. And the people will look to their saviour on the cross. He will be the one who hangs on a pole. Because, you see, the promises to Abraham are fulfilled by people putting their faith in Jesus, their faith in the sacrifice. And so when you get to Romans 4 or Galatians 3, you see that Abraham is the father of all people, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He is the father of all nations if they put their trust in Jesus. Sorry, he's the king of all nations. I think I said father. So here is a picture of Jesus, the king, going up, yes, into Jerusalem, ultimately into heaven, but first on the cross. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we read pictures of Jesus as the king, and he's not just any king. The lamb will overcome them, Revelation 19. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. If you go back to Revelation chapter 4, You've got 24 elders gathered together around the throne where God is seated on the throne and they all have crowns and they lay down their crowns. What's going on? They're acknowledging that they are not king. God on the throne is king. He is the sovereign. He rules over all. And then our attention shifts from Revelation 4 into chapter 5 to the one who is worthy to open the scroll that's in the hand of the one on the throne. And there's only one who is worthy, and that is the lamb who was slain. And he is the one now at the right hand of God. And all the company of heaven are worshipping not only God on the throne, but also the lamb. And we see that image being worked out. Jesus has been gathering the nations. The picture here of uh, Matthew 28. We've read this a few times recently looking at Matthew, looking again at the Bible in 10. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Do you see the logic? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. In other words, I am the king of kings. I am the king of Psalm 47. I'm the one who has authority over all peoples in all places across the whole earth. Therefore, gather up people from everywhere. If he's the king just of Israel, then gather up the Israelites. 
But if he's the king of all the nations, then gather up the Palestinians, the Israelites, the Russians, the Chinese, the Ukrainians, the, the Aussies, the Fijians, the Kenyans, the Tanzanians, the Cubans, the, and I can't remember all the countries in the world. But Jesus is king over them all, whether they know it or not. So let's share the good news. You know what good news means, euangelion? It's the pronouncement of great news. It's usually like this. If they'd had TVs back then, it would have said, this broadcast is interrupted to bring you breaking news. Not of the Twin Towers, but of the Lord being installed as the King. That was the victory. God is King. He rules over his enemies. You see, Jesus is gathering the nations and he calls his followers to join with him as he gathers the nations so that as we look at this wonderful scene in Revelation chapter 5, you have the whole company of heaven surrounding God on the throne and the Lamb who is also the, the, uh, the Lion of Judah who is the Lamb. And the whole company of heaven are singing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth with God and the Lamb. Friends, this is what God is doing. We look around about at the news and, and it seems like there's some very powerful players in our world. It seems like there's some very impressive kings who we just hope control themselves because if they desire, they desire to go a bit berserk, then there is great fear for everybody. And... People have lived throughout the centuries in fear of the, the great rulers of the great empires of this world, whether it's back with the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans. Where are those empires now? They've come and they've gone and there have been other empires, whether it's the Dutch or the French or the English the Americans view themselves as the rulers of the free world. The Chinese and the Russians disagree. The North Koreans think that they are the rulers of their world. I mean, there's all kinds of powerful people in this world who believe that they run things. And of course, those in the know know it's, it's not politicians who run things. It's, it's more likely to be the the multi-billionaires who control the agenda of this world. And so we can live in fear of these people and those nations. We can be overwhelmed by changes that are happening around us at, at quantum speed. We can be devastated by the decisions of our own parliament to make it easy for people to kill off the elderly, for people to kill off the unborn. We can be horrified by the silencing of people who just want to testify to Jesus. And Australia is following suit 
like the rest of the Western world. But God sits on his throne. God is king. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. So we need not fear. In fact, this is a psalm that calls us to celebrate that. Clap. Shout. Sing. Rejoice. We have the one who is ruling this world, our sovereign king of kings, who has stooped to become one of us, to give up his life and shed his blood for us. We need not fear. God is our strength, we saw last week. He is the sovereign king of kings. But he's also our refuge. He's the one who is lifted up on the cross and calls people to him. Friends, this is a psalm, I take it, that causes calls us to praise our God who is King Jesus. But it also calls us to praise our God to the nations and the peoples, to proclaim the good news that Jesus is in authority to those who desperately need to hear it. We, we had a a great rift in our country, didn't we, through the voice vote. And people of both sides desperately desire there to be reconciliation. And we'd love to see the fruit of that in the lives of people day to day in our nation. We'd love to see the gap closed, particularly around issues of, of domestic violence and health care and education and equity in terms of financial well-being and social well-being. There's so many things that we would just love to see. But the Bible tells us that for all of our best efforts, we need to submit to the King of Kings if we're truly going to have reconciliation. We can be united together only fundamentally on the basis of the gospel. Yes, we still are to treat people equitably and fairly and justly and mercifully and generously in this life and it's not all about just saying um, be at peace, go well. It's about looking after each other but it must if it's going to be hope for eternity, if it's going to be true help, if the ultimate gap is going to be closed then we need to hear from Christians whether they be um, Aboriginal brothers and sisters or whether they be people who have come from, from England and shared the gospel here or whether they be people who've come from the Netherlands with the, with the commitment to the scriptures and the gospel or, or wherever it is that we've heard this good news. We, we aren't a, a, an especially multicultural society here on the mid-north coast um, but it's a great blessing as I look around to see people from a whole range of different cultures gathered together here and pray to God that that might be more and more the case, that we might be able to demonstrate in our own lives together that we have a unity founded in Christ as our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus with those around us. Let, let's start at home. Let's Let's have conversations with people at work, with our neighbours, 
with people at the surf club, at the RFS, at other places where we meet. Let's pray that 2024 will be a year of sharing the great news that God has ascended amid shouts.